Thank you very much, Sal. Thank you, Ms. Davis, Catherine Kane, who had much to do with getting me here and getting me here on time. And thank you to all of you. My goodness, you come to these in the middle of the afternoon. Wow. I congratulate all of you who work in state historical societies, museums, the National Park Service, and a host of other institutions that make up this great association. Um, Sal mentioned that I was first a high school teacher. Um, best teaching I probably ever did. Uh, was in those years in the 1970s. I, among other things, used to take busloads of high school students from Flint, Michigan, most of whom had never been out of their state, uh, to Civil War sites in the east, out east, as we said then, and took them to Gettysburg and Harper's Ferry and Antietam and other places. Um, it is in that period of my life that I think I began to understand just how important place was. Uh, feeling like I was from a place that didn't have a history, which of course it did. Uh, and now we're all lamenting that history as General Motors goes under. But it was in those years of visiting sites, not understanding the role of place in history and not having read much about it, that I think I began to finally understand that process. Um, I just want to say, too, that there's, without a question, at least half of what I do now and a lot of other so-called academic historians who work in the academy, half of what we do now is in the realm of public history. And sometimes we call it that. Sometimes we know that's what we're doing. Sometimes we don't. Um, I was sort of ushered into this field by my dear friend Jim Horton, who is kind of Mr. Public History, certainly Mr. Public Television in documentaries. And we started doing summer institutes and workshops and working with Dwight Pitt-Caithley with the Park Service at Harpers Ferry. And then over time with many museums and documentary filmmakers and so on and so on. And now I get the great privilege to direct a, a center at Yale, which is in one part devoted to scholarship, to increasing knowledge, we are a research institute, but fully half of what we do is not visible, frankly, to Yale most of the time. It is in our outreach to teachers. Uh, we're involved in so many teacher workshops, I can't even count them anymore. And the outreach we do with public historians. In fact, just last year, we did our annual uh, conference, some of you attended it, on the entire question of slavery and public history as an international phenomenon. And we had people there from Europe and Africa and South America and the Caribbean and the U.S., all trying to get at this question of why slavery and the slave trade, and why now, and why for the broad public. Now, the purpose of a conference such as this is, of course, to continue to probe the role of the local in history. And you all know this, but I want to focus on that at least for a few minutes before I talk about a couple stories that I've now written a book about, which indeed emanate from two local stories and two historical societies. If all politics are local, as a famous Speaker of the House once said, um, it may easily be the truth, too, that all memory 
is local. At least that's where it begins. We all now have experienced this so many times over. This idea, this notion, this feeling that a sense of the past almost always begins for most people with family or with place, with where they're from. We are always who we are because of where we're from, to some extent. And if all politics is local, and probably all memory is as well, as an individual phenomenon and maybe even as a collective phenomenon, place is at the heart of how we come to see the past. Everyone here knows that history and memory emanate out in concentric circles of awareness, knowledge, and then stories in which a sense of place is embedded. Let me just briefly discuss two of my own most recent personal experiences with this. Just the past month, I've had the privilege to visit both Ghana for a major conference um, right near Elmina Castle on the history of the slave trade and the end of the slave trade. Our center was a co-sponsor. An amazing conference, the most international and diverse conference ever held about the slave trade, according to the Africa hands who were there. Fifteen African countries represented about 20 other countries from outside of Africa. At least half the scholars speaking were Africans on a subject that is still not mainstream scholarship within Africa. But we met at a resort hotel on the coast right between the two famous great slave forts, Elmina Castle, built by the Portuguese in the 1470s, and Cape Coast Castle, built by the British just three miles up the road. Um, this is a place, of course, the Gold Coast of Africa, where that worldwide commerce that had so much to do with shaping the Atlantic world took place for almost four centuries. It was one of the places the Portuguese first began to make fortunes. Elmina Castle, which is surrounded by a teeming, bustling village, which is really a fishing village, and every morning and every evening, you can see those great long boats, often with ten-man crews. They go out in the evening and they return in the morning. And every day on the veranda at breakfast, as we're all having our breakfast, we would see those long boats coming in and every night going out. It's still a very real place in the present. In Cape Coast Castle, a much larger place in this bustling town that has a university is surrounded by varying layers of tourism and curio shops and it's even inside the castle you can buy every kind of trinket you want to buy in Cape Coast Castle just before or just after you take the tour of the dungeons and at each place when you tour them as some of you may have they always take you out the back, which is called the Door of No Return, which was this door that literally opened out onto the beach where slaves were put into the long boats and then taken out to the slave ships, which, of course, had to moor offshore. And for me, the most poignant moment of these tours was one of these moments when I was confronted with my 
sort of world historical sensibility. Here I finally was. I was walking out the back of Elmina Castle. I'd written about Elmina Castle. I had seen films about it. I'd even blathered on one documentary film about it as though I knew what I was talking about. And I was walking through the door of no return. But what hit me was this. You walk through that door. I had to stoop over to get through it. And there's a little beach, but it's very crowded there. And the beach was just packed with boats. They're really these, these fishing boats. And it was late afternoon, and lounging on these boats were fishermen, boys and older men. They're just laying there on their nets like this, staring at us. And one of them even mouthed the question, why are you photographing us? Good question. In those fishermen's eyes, I saw the unbridgeable gulf that does sometimes exist between past and present, between the meaning of a place and its long, long history. All memory can be local, but that is also where it can be dangerous. I hated that moment. I hated my own reaction to it. I was terribly uncomfortable. And it wasn't just about the slave trade. It was about somehow invading the space of those lounging fishermen having a nap on their nets. And I can rest assured, none of them wanted to talk about the slave trade. I hurried around, I took my photographs, and I got out of there. The second place I just got back from is Liverpool. I had never been to Liverpool, except in Beatles songs. Mary, cross the... You know, you can't think of Liverpool without humming those tunes. And yes, I went to the Beatles Museum. Yes, I bought Beatles coasters and Beatles buttons. And my brother's getting Beatles shot glasses for Christmas and so on. But I was in Liverpool for the opening of a major new museum, the International Slavery Museum, which is now part of Museums Liverpool, which is located, if you've ever been to Liverpool, in what's called Albert Dock, which is this huge, stunning, old brick structure of a giant dock. It's a, a, a square dock that you can only get into on two sides. It opens up, of course, into the Mercy River, which then opens up into the Atlantic. And it was Liverpool, of course, that became, by the middle of the 18th century, the largest slave trading port in the world. A slave ship was leaving or coming into Liverpool every three days, statistically, in the 1750s and 1760s. Well over 100 operated out of Liverpool every year for two to three decades. The old berths of the slave ships are still there. Much of the architecture along the waterfront has changed, although not all of it. These docks were haunting in some ways when you understood the history. There's the sea out there and the vast world, and you can't be in such a place without thinking about this vast mercantile trade that reshaped the world again. Not unlike you can only think of that as you hear those waves smashing into Elmina Castle. The international character of the events at the opening, there were culture ministers from Barbados and Jamaica and African countries. There were libations done by African chiefs. Uh, it was a very international event. At the same time, 
It was a very local event. It was very much Liverpool's statement, finally, that it was going to face this past. It was going to tell this story. And it was going to tell it in a major museum. It was going to invite the whole world to come see if they can just get them on trains to go up to Liverpool. We arrived, arrived in Victoria Station from Gatwick Airport, and I said, uh, where, I, where do I buy tickets to Liverpool? And the guy looked at me and said, why do you want to go to Liverpool? <laughs> swear to God. And I said, uh, there's a new museum there. He said, okay. And that's where we left it. But it's Liverpool, and they, they, held, they held a, a gala black-tie dinner for 300 people in this gorgeous old hall. There were ministers of this and ministers of that and the mayors of all sorts of cities. And the announcement was made by the director of the museum that that very day, the mayor of London had issued a formal apology for the slave trade and that he wept when he did it. And I didn't know whether to weep or you know, laugh or cry over that, frankly. I mean... Uh, the mayor of London is a sensitive guy. I'm, I have this on good, good um, advice. Um, but it, too, was a haunted place with a world historical significance and a very real local reason to tell it. And at all the events on the day of the opening, much of which were held out in a tent, a huge tent out on the waterfront, they were really conducted by the African and Caribbean communities of the U.K., and there were a lot of white people there, too. But it was the new UK. It was the new brown and black Britain telling their story in British accents. Memory was given to man for some wise purpose, wrote Frederick Douglass in 1884. The past, said Douglass, is the mirror in which we may discern the dim outlines of the future and by which we may make them more symmetrical. Now, wouldn't that be nice? I mean, Douglas is right in a way. We look at that mirror of the past because we want it to make our future more symmetrical. Put it in order for us, O oh mirror of memory. Of course, it doesn't always do that, does it? The mirror can sometimes be terrifying, troublesome. We don't know whether to trust it. It may lie to us. We don't know who the source is. Sometimes it does educate us. Sometimes the poets also can help on this thing we call memory. And sometimes, as no one else can, the poets can take us to the local. Because after all, what is a poet's material? But usually, the, the most local of images. In Robert Penn Warren's poem, and we're going to discuss, Penn, Dwight McCaslin and I are going to discuss Penn Warren in an hour or so on another front. But in his poem entitled Kentucky Mountain Farm, he writes of what he calls the stubborn, lean men who worked that rocky terrain of the Kentucky Hill Country. The rocks and the stones become metaphors in Penn Warren's poem for the sometimes impenetrable, inscrutable power of nature. But then he also describes the beauty of the grasses, the ravines, the changing colors of the hillsides, and of the swaying wind in the sycamore trees, the rushing of the creek in spring, 
And then suddenly, Warren finds some history buried under the rocks. And the poem ends with these lines. In these autumn orchards, once young men lay dead. Gray coats, blue coats. Young men on the mountainside clamored and fought. Heels muddied the rocky spring. Their reason is hard to guess. Remembering on their black mustaches in moonlight. Their reason is hard to guess. And a long time passed. The apple falls falling into the quiet night. It's one of those thousand times in a Penn Warren poem or in poems of others when he suddenly sees the Union and Confederate dead under those rocks on a hillside. And how many of us have perhaps cultivated our own historical imagination at some point in our lives by imagining the Civil War fought on some hillside? We might have done it at times to find that troubled story there. We might have done it at times to find a romantic story there, which I think I did as a kid. We can never know just where we might find the past coming up through the rocks to shock us, to haunt us, to educate us. But what is this thing we call memory? Almost nothing renders us human as much as our unique capacity to remember. Other animals surely have memory. They have it in biological and even in some social forms. They can do amazing things in flocks and herds and schools under the sea. But no other creatures, so far as we know, can use memory to create, to record experience, to forge self-conscious associations, to form and practice language, to know, collect, narrate, and write their past, at least so far as we know. We not only can know at least some of our past, we know that we can know it. And it's what separates humans. As the Israeli philosopher Avishai Marjalit has written in a wonderful little book called The Ethics of Memory, memory, he says, is knowledge from the past, but it is not necessarily knowledge about the past. Which I think is Marjolite's way of saying, we have lots of memory, but beware how accurate it might be. In everyday life and in the world of scholarship, all considerations of memory seem perpetually to ride on a kind of a teeter-totter of trust and distrust, up and down. And for most of us, probably in this room, distrust usually carries the most weight. And trust just struggles to keep up. But memory's power is everywhere, and the testimonies are ancient. It's one of the great, great subjects, of course, of literature and poetry and of philosophy. In the Confessions, St. Augustine in the third century refers to memory as what he calls the vast court or the treasury in our mind. He stands in awe of its force. He calls it a great chamber. And then he says, no one has yet sounded, quote, sounded the bottom thereof. 
Great is the power of memory, writes Augustine, a fearful thing. And oh my God, he goes on, a deep and boundless manifoldness. And this thing is the mind, and this am I myself. Augustine was convinced that, in essence, we are our memories. They dictate to us, we respond to them, and then we endlessly revise them, whether we know it or not. Memory can control us, it can overwhelm us, it can even poison us. Or it can sometimes save us from confusion and despair. As individuals, we cannot live effectively without it. But it is also part of the agony, I think, of the human condition to live with it as well. Is all of this true when we speak of individual memory? I should say, is all of this true when we speak of collective memory, that elusive idea, as it is when we talk about individual memory? Individual memory is much easier to comprehend. We can't function without You can't find the room you're staying in, the elevator, the men's room, your keys, etc. We can't function in daily life in the most practical of ways without memory. It's why loss of memory is also an eternal fascination in literature. Collective memory, though, is a different animal, isn't it? It's a messy concept. How do you know a collective memory when you meet one? Who or what constitutes a collective memory? This association is a collective memory. Schools are collective memories. Universities are collective memories. Nations have collective memories. At least I believe they do. This, this is, you can get up a debate about this, especially with some sociologists and some neuroscientists. I've been to a number of memory conferences now where I, am, I tend to be the token historian who's brought into, and now we'll have a paper on collective memory after there's been eight papers by these, these uh, neuroscientists who are all trying to map the brain and figure out, no, it happens, it happens, no, it happens here. No, 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 it happens here. But, but no, it's up here in this lobe. It's great and fantastic work. It really is. And then there are the social psychologists who are you know, doing all kinds of memory experiments, often with the students in their own classes and so on. And they're always a little suspicious of this thing, collective memory, because it's hard to pin down. Uh, you know, there, there, there isn't always you know, a membership list. Well, sometimes there is, but sometimes there isn't. It's this process of making collective memories that goes on every day in all societies, whether those are local collective memories. You've all encountered this. There's no, nothing quite as powerful as a local memory of a story or a family memory of a story, and you're the historian who waltzes in and says, I'm sorry, folks, it's not true. And then you better find the door. Don't tell me what happened at D-Day. My grandfather was there. Yeah, well, what did your grandfather see? Let's not go into that. He survived. It's a story, of course, always about not just what happened, but who controls it, who creates it, who fashions it, who tells that story. Ralph Waldo Emerson, as only Emerson could in those magical sentences he could write. He wrote the worst paragraphs in American history, but the greatest sentences. <laughs> Emerson wrote beautifully about memory, by the way, uh, in, in particularly one essay. 
Emerson said, memory, his definition, is as an affection, emotive, an affection. We remember the things, said Emerson, which we love and those which we hate. We remember at the extremes of experience, he seemed to be saying. We remember those moments that really stick. The times when we hated something. The times when we loved something. And, but, of course, our business is often that vast world in between, that vast world of all the social and political and cultural history that happens in between those moments when people have a love experience or a hate experience. And that's not always what they want to hear about, is it? Well, historians especially don't trust memory. And as this field of memory kicked in, and Michael Kamen, more than anybody, had much to do with creating it, even before he was calling it memory. He was calling it tradition back in the 70s and 80s, and then he called it memory at about the time I was getting interested in it, and he gave me the courage to call it memory. Um, we don't usually trust memory. Uh, we're more interested in the process by which it evolves, how it gets used, how it gets uh, recycled, how it gets passed on into one sovereign present after another. In his novel, The Hamlet, William Faulkner reminds us of our human weakness when it comes to embarrassing or traumatic forms of memory. Only thank God men have done learned how to forget quick, says one of Faulkner's characters, what they ain't brave enough to try to cure. Man, does that sum up so much of Civil War memory. And then there's Mark Twain warning us, as only Twain could, I think, about the human faculty of memory. When I was a young man, said Twain, I remembered everything, whether it happened or not. But now that I'm an old man, I remember only the things that never happened. <laughs> Twain just wrote one truth after another, always from the side door, you know. And just recently I've been reading Gunter Graz's new memoir called Peeling the Onion. God, get it and read it if you haven't. Whatever you think of Gunter Graz and the fact that he's confessed uh, being a young Nazi and in the, uh, the uh, Waffen-SS and so on as an 18-year-old, it is one of the most brilliant meditations on memory by a novelist that I've ever read. It is one of the best war memoirs I've ever read, and I've read a lot of them. He has these nuggets to take home. Memory, says Graz, likes to play hide-and-seek, to crawl away. It tends to hold forth, to dress up, often needlessly. Memory contradicts itself, pedant that it is, but it will have its way. Or this one. I can call only on the most questionable witness to the stand. Lady Memory, he says, a capricious creature, prone to migraines and reputed to smile at the highest bidder. Before I leave this memory business and get on with a real story or two, which is what historians are supposed to do, right? 
You know, all of us have confronted this now many times over uh, in the public, and that is this difference we find, and you may disagree. I mean, there is a debate on this, too. That is the difference between history and memory. So let me just try my own definition on you, and then I'll leave it alone. History is what trained historians do. It's a reasoned reconstruction of the past rooted in research. It tends to be critical and skeptical of human motives and action, and it is therefore more secular than what people commonly call memory. History can be read by or belong to everyone. Anyone can claim its mantle. It is therefore more relative. It's more contingent on place and chronology and scale and a host of other factors. But if history is shared and secular, at least we want it to be, memory is often treated as a sacred set of absolute meanings and stories, possessed as the heritage, there's that word, or the identity of a community. Memory is often owned. History just gets interpreted. Memory is passed down through generations. History just gets revised generation after generation. Memory often coalesces in objects, in sites, in monuments, in places. But history, of course, does its job. It seeks to understand context and all their complexities. And it's why it sometimes isn't as much fun. History asserts the authority, at least for some people, history asserts the authority of academic training often and canons of evidence while memory carries the often more immediate authority of simply community membership or a personal experience. The remembered past, wrote John Lukacs, the remembered past is always much larger than the recorded past. Now, that may seem not accurate at times. When we think of the vast, infinite worlds of knowledge in our libraries, our historic, those uncatalogued collections, you'd love to get cataloged if you could hire the right person to do it, or if you could have the money to hire the person to do it, so that the public could come in and use it. But the memory, the past around in people's heads out there in the world is much bigger than what we have in our repositories. And most of those people will never be in our repositories, and that's our challenge. Now, I'd, I'd love to go into this business of the memory boom even even more, but I'll pass on it for the moment. Maybe in Q&A we can take that up a bit if you want. There is a memory boom going on as we speak. It has been for a decade or two. And there's a memory boom going on on the subject of slavery right now, which is thoroughly fascinating to me. And since I was asked to do this, a few months ago, I put together my nine reasons why there's a memory boom going on about slavery, but I'll spare you that for the moment. If you want to talk about it later, that would be great. What I want to talk about for the remainder of my time is uh, a new book. It's about to come out, published in October. Um, but I want to focus on it because it is about two recently discovered slave narratives that have been sitting in two local historical societies, they are boxes in the attic stories that came down and fell into my lap, and it has forced me to do research in certain kinds of local history that I had never done before. 
and now I'm bitten, and I kind of want to keep doing it. The book is called A Slave No More. It's about the two slave narratives and the lives of uh, Wallace Turnage and John Washington, both of whom wrote their narratives after the Civil War. And I'll briefly describe how each was discovered and then a little bit about their stories that they tell us and about what happened to them. In the book, I've been able to trace out their lives. One, John Washington lived until 1918. Wallace Turnage lived until 1916. They lived real lives. They became part of the first generation of the northern black working class. And it's finally proof to me that the histories of heretofore utterly unknown, ordinary people can be told, at least to an extent. But this is a project that happened to me because of the work of others. The first, John Washington's narrative, which was written in 1873. He actually dates it. It stayed in his family. It ended up in the possession of a granddaughter named Evelyn Washington Easterly, who gave it on loan to the Library of Congress in 1976. And I have this correspondence. But she got cold feet within a year and decided uh -uh, she wanted it back. And there's a letter exchange between the head archivist of the LC and Evelyn. And he says, but before I send it back to you, may I make a photocopy? She writes back and says, yes. So when this came to me, I knew, oh, dear, there's a photocopy of this at the LC. I hope nobody has found this. And sure enough, a literary scholar at Virginia Commonwealth had found it, and he had put it on a syllabus, which is on the web. But he's not publishing the narrative. Anyway, it, someone else had actually seen it, I must confess. Anyway... Mrs. Easterly gave it to her best friend. This is how these things occurred, isn't it? Her name was Alice Jackson Stewart, who worked on it for quite a while in the 1970s and 80s. Uh, she did a lot of research into John Washington's past about his family. She prepared family trees, all of which I am very grateful for in the collection. But she ended up in old age giving it to her son, who is an African-American judge in Boston named Julian Houston, who also doubles as a novelist. He's now retired. He put it on deposit for safekeeping at the Massachusetts Historical Society in Boston. He contacted his literary agent and said, would you find me a historian who might work with this, and maybe we can get it published. And Wendy Strothman, that literary agent, who is now a very good friend, <laughs> uh, brought it to me and said, would you have a look at this? I was in transition from moving to Yale, and my life was up for grabs. I, I didn't even look at it for the first, I don't know, four months or so that I had it. I almost lost it. She almost took it back. At any rate, um, there it was. The second narrative came to, within the same five- to six-month period in 2003. I got invited to the Greenwich, Connecticut Historical Society, small historical society in Greenwich, richest town per capita in the United States, uh, to speak to their annual dinner of their board. And all 20 members of their board were there, and I was invited to talk on memory, and I'm sitting at dinner, and it's director Deborah Mackey. Deborah may even be here. For all. Deborah, if you're here, raise your hand. I don't know if you are. Oh, terrific. Well, yes, hello. 
Anyway, Deborah says, uh, someone on my staff thinks we have an authentic slave narrative. Would you have a look at it? And I said, come on, not another one. Give me a break. She delivered me the photocopy as I was leaving that night. I took it home. I finally sat down with the two of them together, and I read them, and I had one of those, oh, my God, moments. Here were two roughly 100-page, utterly untouched, unedited, unmediated narratives of emancipation, largely. Their stories are largely their stories of how they escaped, written after the Civil War. One of them dated, the other not. The Turnage narrative, the one housed in Greenwich, it is not clear when he wrote his, although from internal evidence I think it's the 1880s, and he wrote it in more than one sitting. I do know that. It came to us via his daughter, his one surviving daughter, Lydia Turnage Connolly, who lived to be 99 years old. She passed for white, living in Greenwich. She described herself in all the census as Portuguese to explain her dark complexion. She married an Irish immigrant hotel worker. She died childless in 1984 in a nursing home. And her only friend left in the world was an already elderly woman named Gladys Watts, who kept a couple boxes of her stuff for 18 years. And one night in early 2003, she was watching Unchained Memories, which is the PBS documentary about the WPA narratives. And the next morning, she called up the Greenwich Historical Society and said, I think I may have something you'd want to look at. And they sent someone out, and they said, yes, you do. (laughs) And that's how they got it. In one box, it simply contained a beautiful black clamshell box into which the narrative, leather-bound, written on blue-lined paper in a stationary book purchased at a stationary shop in Lower Manhattan, was housed. In that box also were four gorgeous photographs of Wallace Turnage and one gorgeous photograph of Lydia. That's how Greenwich got the document. They then had the great good sense to hire a researcher named Christine McKay from the Schomburg Library in New York, who, among other things, is a great genealogist. I mean, she really knows how to do genealogy, and she has taught me how, at least kicking and screaming, she has taught me how. Uh, And uh, Christine had already done a good deal of work on Wallace's background before I ever got involved in this. That's how these two documents landed in my lap. What to do. From census manuscripts, from Freedman's bank records, city directories, regimental histories, local newspapers, official records of the War of the Rebellion, lots of maps, photograph collections, pension records, and so on and so forth. I was eventually able to reconstruct the lives of these two men. Now, briefly, let me just give you a sense of how many of these slave narratives even exist, very briefly. And I'll just tell the stories they've told us and move it out. Many of you may know this, but the genre of slave narratives is a very small group of texts. They've become tremendously important in the last, really, 20 to 30 years. They were virtually all out of print for a century until Frederick Douglass's was brought back into print in 1960 by Benjamin Quarles. But between the 1740s, in English, between the 1740s and 1865, the end of the war, 
approximately 65 autobiographies of one kind or another were written by or written for ex-slaves and published in English either in Britain or the United States in book form or pamphlet form. Some of those, of course, have now become canonized classics, especially Frederick Douglass's and Harriet Jacobs, but also the narratives of William Wells Brown, Solomon Northrup, Henry Bibb, Josiah Henson, and others are taught, and a lot of Equiano, the great 18th century narrative published in Britain. Now, post-65, the batch of these into which Wallace's and John's narratives fit, between 1865 and the 1920s, when the last of these was published by a surviving ex-slave, approximately 50 to 55 autobiographies of one kind or another, depending on how you define that autobiography, were published in English. The most famous in that post-bellum genre, of course, is Booker T. Washington's autobiography, Up From Slavery, a huge bestseller in 1901 when it was published. Now, most of these post-bellum narratives are spiritual autobiographies. They really are, in some ways, conversion narratives. Um, many of them are written by former slaves turned clergymen. There's a whole subset of these. In fact, the majority of them really fit into this genre we might call slave cabin to the pulpit or from slavery to affluence, which is actually the title of one of them. These are often clergymen telling their rise to success. They often leave slavery quickly behind. They're very practical stories, much less romantic than the antebellum slave narratives. The subject of these postbellum narratives is not the memory of slavery, by and large, as it is the story of how the narrator competes and wins and achieves success in the post-freedom world. Frederick Douglass famously likened slavery to a prison, and he used that prison metaphor all over the place. In the antebellum narratives, Booker T. Washington famously likened slavery to a school. His metaphor was that it was a school of learning, of teaching, of preparation for slaves. The antebellum slave narratives are saturated with the oppression of slavery, with the evil of slavery. It's a world always shadowed by the past. Not so the postbellum narratives. The postbellum narratives are all about the future, making new lives. This is in part what makes John Washington's and Wallace Turner's narratives so special, because they were untouched, unedited, unmediated. It's not absolutely clear that either of them was aware that they were writing in any genre although I'm completely convinced they had read Douglas and a few of the other antebellum slave narratives. Their narratives are free of any self-conscious conventions of style. They had no sponsors. Nobody wrote imprimaturs on the front of theirs. There, were no, no, there was no amanuensis. They are as pure and raw a document as we will ever get. In fact, just this week... Uh, my publisher decided to do an audiobook version of this. I got to read part of my own prose, which was a strange experience, because they stop you every time you don't swallow or breathe right, and they make you do it over. I thought I breathed pretty well, but apparently I don't. 
But the black actor they hired out in California to perform the two narratives for the tape, I was just told this week, really struggled at first because the prose in both of these narratives is so broken. The syntax falls apart at times. Each of them will write three perfect sentences in a row, and then their their grammar and syntax just fall apart. And he had a struggle at first finding their voices, but once he did, I'm told at least, he knocked it out, I hope. At least that's what I'm told. So if you're one of those truck drivers who listens to novels, and I'm told there are many, you can pick it up. And Anyway, both of these are unfiltered access, if you want, to the process and the moment of emancipation. Um, in their own personal ways, Washington and Turnage are saying, in effect, here's who I am, here's how I achieve my freedom in the midst of war, and here is what it means to me. Now, as for audience, that is, who indeed they may have been writing for, I can't know for sure. Neither ever said. There's no document that survives that tells me. But I'm at least half convinced that they essentially wrote them for their families, for their sons and daughters, for their churches possibly, and for their communities. But happily, no one ever touched them. All right, who were they? Wallace Turnage was born in 1846 on a tiny tobacco farm near Snow Hill, North Carolina, which to this day is still only a one- or two-traffic light town. He is sold at the age of 14 to a... His father, by the way, was white, and he knew who his father was until his dying day. He put his real father's name on every document that he ever signed in his life, which was many documents. He is sold at the age of 14 in the winter of 1860 to Richmond, Virginia, he sold to Hector Davis, one of the largest slave traders in Richmond, who kept meticulous records. His entire record book is housed to this day at the Chicago Historical Society, because that's where it ended up, because the Union Army confiscated it in the war and took it to Chicago. He worked for about six to eight months as a kind of uh, hand at the auction house. His job was helping prepare the slave auction every day. And then one day he's told... Hey, kid, today you're in the auction. And he was sold to an Alabama cotton planter named Chalmers who came to Richmond twice a year to buy some slaves. And a little over 48 hours later, by train, he was dropped off at a large cotton plantation near Pickensville, Alabama, which is in central western Alabama, almost on the Mississippi border cotton operation of about 85 slaves. He'd never seen a cotton plantation. It is is as though he had been landed on a new planet. Most of Wallace Turnage's narrative is the story of his five attempts to escape, most of them in the midst of the war. His first two attempts come just before the war breaks out. He attempted four times to escape up through Mississippi trying to get eventually to the Union armies, which, as many of you know, occupied most of northern Mississippi, especially the the town city of Corinth, which by 1862 and early 63 had the largest contraband camp in the United States. Uh, It had about 6,000 freedmen living in tents and even some in log cabins at the Corinth contraband camp. That's where Wallace was trying to get to. Time after time, he would flee, often after a beating, Sometimes because he couldn't stand it anymore. And he had a meticulous sense of geography. 
which is one of the reasons I, st I really started to believe him. I just got out my Rand McNally maps at first, and he names all these towns, and he names the distances. And he was following a railroad line most of the time. And sure enough, he had his distances pretty accurate, and he had all the names of those towns right, and he even spelled most of them right. His owner kept trying to capture him, in fact did. He spent over four months at, at large at one point into 1863. He got within hearing distance of the Battle of Corinth, where 800 Union soldiers died. He was captured by Confederate uh, patrols. He was held in, a, in effect, a bounty hunter's cabin for weeks, who tortured him, even threw him into a fire at one point, put him in neck chains, ankle chains, you name it. His owner finally came, found him, purchased him back, in effect, and got him back after that fourth escape. Tired of trying to hang on to this kid, but not willing to give him up because of how valuable he was. And by the way, on that last, on that fourth escape, when he's brought back to Alabama, his owner's taken him down the road, and he runs into a Confederate patrol, and these Confederate soldiers say, so what's the problem with your slave here? And Chalmers tells him, well, he's an incessant runaway. And the Confederate soldiers, according to Wallace, say, well, let us make target practice of him. And they rope him to a tree, and they're just going to use him for target practice. And Chalmers begs them not to. He says, he's worth thousands of dollars to me. Don't shoot him. And they said, eh, all right. Which, of course, was the gospel truth. He took him a week later down to Mobile. He sold him for $2,000 in Confederate money to a merchant in Mobile. A man named Minge, a wealthy merchant, and he worked in effect for about a year in 63 and 64 as a house slave, and he drove the carriage for the Minge family. One day he crashed the carriage, and the pony got away, and the carriage was all broken, and he's put on the pony by the Confederate troops. Mobile had a garrison of over 10,000 Confederate troops at that point. And he's told to just go home. He goes home. The mistress is angry at him. His owner, Mr. Minge, is angry at him. And Wallace is forced to go in the basement and lay bricks in a mud floor. And he seems to snap. And he just runs again. And he runs into the black and Creole communities of Mobile, where he'd become quite connected, particularly in a church. And he's at large for another week or so, living in haylofts and whatnot. And finally, he's captured again. He's taken to the slave jail where you could hire a, a, a man who beat slaves for wages. And this is all over the Mobile newspapers. And he was given 30 lashes. He was stripped naked, um, roped up on a wall by his wrists, and he's given 30 lashes with his owner watching with the worst whip they had, he said, the kind that, that cut you in every, every whipping. And then at the end of that, bloodied, his master just says, walk home. Instead of walking home, he simply walked out through the Confederate fortifications, which were these huge breastworks and trench works, three layers of them. And I went and studied the maps of the Confederate trench works. And he did it because he'd probably just passed for another campaign. There were lots of black young men, in particular slaves, working for the Confederate troops. He simply walked out of Mobile. And the best part of his narrative becomes the last section where he describes his three weeks of traversing 27 miles from Mobile down the western shore of Mobile Bay. And if you know Mobile at all, 
Uh, you know what a glorious, huge bay it is, but the western shore of Mobile Bay is, is a swamp. It's the Fowl River Estuary. He names all the rivers. He gets the names accurate. He describes the snakes and the, and the alligators and so on. It takes him three weeks. He's half starved. He gets finally to a place called Cedar Point, which is out at the tip of Mobile Bay. And he describes an amazing sequence of Confederate outlooks come by night, excuse me, by day, and they go up into some kind of tree, or they have a tree house, and they're looking out in Mobile Bay, and then at night they leave and go back to some camp. So he uses it at night to sleep in. He comes down in the day. They go up. He comes down. Meanwhile, in the day, he builds himself some kind of little uh, platform on the swampy water to keep himself out of the water. And then he describes praying really hard. And both narratives, of course, are full of a deep religiosity. And one day the tide brings in a rowboat, and he pulls out a plank of wood, and he gets into his rowboat, and he rows out into Mobile Bay, and he describes in very romantic terms the waves and the storm that's about to take over his boat. And I don't doubt it. I've seen Mobile Bay, and nobody goes in Mobile Bay in a rowboat if you're in your right mind. And he describes how he hears the oars of a Union gunboat. And the Union gunboat pulls up next to him. He hears somebody yell, jump in, kid, in effect. And he describes how with the rhythm of their oars, he leaps into their boat. And then what I, I think is Wallace's best literary moment, when you think of him reflecting back on writing this, he describes how he leaps into the boat, and then he's, and he's describing the sound of the waves, and he says, those Union sailors were stunned with silence as they looked at me. And then he describes how he looked back at the shore, and he could see the two Confederate lookouts. And he says he breathed his first breaths of freedom. They took him to a sand island fort, Fort Gaines, which is still there, beautiful ruins of that old fort. And he meets General Granger, who was the Union commander of all the forces in that region. And I suspect Granger interviewed him because they wanted intelligence from Mobile when they found out he was a slave from Mobile. And he's given two choices. One was to join a black regiment, or the other was to become a servant to a white officer. He chooses to be the servant of a white officer, uh, probably having experienced enough of war. And he served out the war as a cook for a captain in a Maryland regiment whose name was Julius Turner, who has an enormous pension record and lived to be about 98 himself. Wallace Turnage will live out his life, most of it, in New York City, and in Jersey City, New Jersey. He spent three years in Baltimore when his regiment was mustered out, or the regiment he served was mustered out. He managed to get his mother and some siblings out of North Carolina, by means I've never been able to figure out, into New York. And his mother appears in a census in 1870, living in the 200 block of West 60th Street, right behind what is today Lincoln Center which was then an entirely black neighborhood. He worked at every conceivable job that a black working-class man could have. He appears in city directories as everything from a night watchman to a drayman to a, to a, a barman or a, a, saloon, uh, a bartender. Uh, eventually, he's a, he's a glass blower. 
uh, and on and on and on and on. He joined the Black Fraternal Order. He was a member of the Abyssinian Baptist Church. He married three times, had seven children, four of whom died in infancy, which led me off to study infant mortality for a while. And he and all of his children and all of his wives are buried in his fraternal order's collective gravesite in Cypress Hill Cemetery in Brooklyn today. John Washington was born in Fredericksburg, Virginia. He's a little older than Wallace by about five years. His narrative is more of a true slave narrative in the simple sense that he tells his background, his childhood, his growing up years. He clearly was a skilled, young, light-skinned, urban slave. And that makes all the difference in many ways in his life. His father was also white, although the greatest frustration in this project is that we've never been able to figure out who he was. There's so many Washingtons in Virginia. Why couldn't his name have been anything but Washington in Virginia, especially around Fredericksburg? God. There's this wonderful line on the first page of his narrative, and he says, When I think back at my youth, I see myself as a small, light-haired boy, very often passing easily as a white boy. But he was a slave, make no mistake. He first learned his letters from his mother. As I was telling friends at lunch, one of the most amazing things I discovered was by digging in the Fredericksburg newspapers in the early 1840s, we found a runaway ad for his mother, Sarah. It has to be her because her owner only owned four or five slaves, and one of them was named Sarah, about 23 years old, and she fits the description. And she ran away when, when John was only three years old. First of all, it was, it was very unusual for women to run away. It was very unusual for women with children to run away. But the idea that John's own mother had been a runaway for a sufficient period of time to merit an ad in the newspaper is remarkable. Did she ever tell him? I don't know. But I do have a moment where I speculate in the book when he gets her out right after the war and he's living two blocks from the White House and they were walking around the grounds of the White House. Did she ever stop and tell him, oh, by the way, John, I ran away too <laughs> when you were three. Would you like to hear that story? Oh, it's so much to tell, and I won't go on much further. He had a grandmother named Molly who had nine children by probably three different fathers. It's a remarkable story of the racial intermixture of the slave South in this. But John's story is basically this. By the late 1850s, he begins to be hired out. He's very skilled. He's first hired out to a family for a year. He's their jack-of-all-trades. Then he's hired out to a tobacco factory for a while in Fredericksburg. And I have a photograph of that old factory. And he's hired out for a while uh, to a bank. He lived, lived in what was known as the Farmer's Bank. That building is still there. It's still a bank. It's one of these PNC banks. I don't know what that stands for. The PNC Bank in Fredericksburg is mounting a small exhibition on John that opens this October when the book comes out because he lived in one of those upstairs offices for several months. He was then hired out to a saloon in Richmond for a year love letters, courtship letters by slaves. He writes it when he's about 19, she's about 15. It's incredible letters. It's like five pages long. She loves me, she loves me not. I saw you with so-and-so. I, you know. 
He ended up marrying her in January 1862, three months, four months before he escaped. And here's how he escaped. The Union armies arrived on the Rappahannock River for the first time in April 1862, as you Civil War experts know. John, at that point, is hired out to a hotel in Fredericksburg called the Shakespeare Hotel. Swear to God. And he's kind of, he's like a manager of the place. He's a slave, but he's a manager. The owner trusts him so much, he gives John the payroll to pay the help, etc. But the Yankees are coming, and the whole town is getting out of town. The white people are all packing everything up. His, his mistress, his owner, Mrs. Tolliver, he has this exchange with her in the narrative where she says she's packing, literally packing the china and the silver. And she says, now, John, we're leaving tomorrow. You'll be with us, won't you, John? Yes, 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 ma'am. Yes, Mrs., I'll be with you. And the next scene is John at the Shakespeare Hotel, and all the guests are squirming out of, or scramming out of the hotel to get out of Fredericksburg. They're evacuating. And the owner gives John the payroll, pay off the help, he says. And John describes all the white people fleeing the hotel, and all the black help go up to the roof of the hotel where they can see the Yankee soldiers with their bayonets. And they can begin to hear the music of Yankee bands. And he comes down into the kitchen. He gathers all the help around. He pours a round of drinks. And he holds a toast to the Yankees. And then he says, now I don't know where you're going to go, but get out of here and don't get too far from the Yankees. And then John walks out. He witnessed the surrender of Fredericksburg down on the now burnt bridge. And then he walked toward the music of a Union band about a mile up river. He said he turned at the Filkins Mill, and the ruins of the Filkins Mill are still there. I found the very spot where he crossed the river, because there's the Filkins Mill, and there's the river. Talk about local places. He goes down to the river with his cousin, and across the river are some Union troops, and they yell over to him, hey, kid, you want to come over? He says, yes. They sent a boat. He goes across that river, which he'd swam in. He'd been baptized in that river. He'd played hooky in that river all his life. He went across, and by that night, he was a cook for the 21st New York Regiment. He eventually became a mess cook on General Rufus King's staff, and he served up most of the rest of that summer as a camp hand, uh, right on up through the campaign of Second Manassas. And he finally gave up the war and is part of the first wave of freedmen into Washington. Um, he actually went into Washington back and forth two, three times. And he finally got his now wife, infant child, his mother, and his grandmother out with him into Washington, D.C., where all of them are by uh, the city directory of 1865. His first residence was in a building that is now on the site of Constitution Hall, two and a half blocks from the White House. And he was part of the 500 members of Shiloh Baptist Church from Fredericksburg who founded Shiloh Baptist Church in Washington. John lived out the rest of his life until the last five years in Washington. He and Annie had uh, six children, five lived, five sons. That's a long story, but it's, it's a remarkable story of the value of education. One of his sons, the youngest in particular, who indeed saved the narrative and gave it to his daughter, 
Uh, one of his sons became very well educated and a distinguished teacher in Washington, and even at one point was the national commissioner of the Black Collegiate Football Conference. I thought you'd like to know that. Anyway, what we have here is simply this. Two stories heretofore utterly unknown. Two men who sat down at some point to decide to write this one important story of their lives. John Washington became, by the way, a painter. On his obit, he's listed as a retired sign painter. He retired in 1913. That's what he called it. He retired in 1913, and he moved up to, of all places, Cohasset, Massachusetts. If you know the coastline of Massachusetts, it's one of the richest South Shore communities you can find near Boston. It had mansions built by the leather barons in the late 19th century, which are all along the coast there. But his son, James, went there to get a railroad job. And his son worked for three decades as the watchman who raised and lowered the arm on the local train as it went through and bought his own house. And John lived out the last five years of his life sitting on the screen porch of his son's house. And that house is still there. And my favorite moment in my research, talk about local... This is such a local historical society, you almost can't find it. But in the Cohasset Historical Society, which is run by one man who's 88 years old and is the local memory, I found that house. And I only found the house. I said, I want to find his gravesite. I knew the name of the cemetery. I said, has anyone ever, you know... Said, found his grave? He said, oh, yeah, I've got the whole map of the cemetery here. In fact, he said, last year, the state of Massachusetts Humanities Commission did a whole study of our cemetery to see whether they could put it on the National Register of Historic Places. He said, we failed. We didn't make it. But you might want to read the report. And in the report, you know, if they have the three, four criteria to be on the national, you have to have so many famous people, you have to have the great art and the gravestones, et cetera, et cetera. But finally, in the last paragraph, it said, the most famous and distinguished person buried here is a former slave and Union soldier, it said. He'd have appreciated the promotion, uh, named John Washington. And at that moment, I realized, you know, by 2005 or whenever that report was done, it had finally become cool to have a slave buried in your local cemetery. It wasn't one of the leather barons or, you know, mayor so-and-so from 1898. It was John Washington. Anyway, I think John Washington and Wallace Turnage told us more than even they could have imagined. And though they probably thought they were simply lost in history, now they are found. Thank you. There must be time for some questions and comments. You want to step to the mics? Somebody's probably found a document about John Washington that I don't have yet, and I'm going to be embarrassed. <laughs> there may be one descendant out there somewhere. I don't know. Yes, ma'am. Thank you very much. Can you, can you hear me? Yes. There we go. 
Thank you very much. Uh, I'm sure everyone in this room, like myself, found that very engaging. Um, I have a, a question or comment, I guess. Uh, I'm very motivated to read your books and the books that you mentioned, the ones that I haven't as yet. But this room... Always a good idea. Yeah, always a good idea. Uh, this room of us is a selective representation. Mm -hmm. And I read something recently where less than, well, I guess the percentage really was maybe 85% of all of us read less than one book a year or do not read one book a year. That's not the us in this room. That's the other us. Yeah. The other us. Yeah. And so I guess my question is... uh, George Bush says he's read 85 in the last three years, though. Did you read that? He counts the books. 85 sentences, maybe. Um, (laughs) No, but he counts the books he reads. I mean, that's... Laura... Anyway, go ahead. All right. (laughs) I guess that's my point. Uh, But in in any event, so so here we sit, and we're all great readers, and a lot of us are... uh, uh, Our professional lives are museums, historical organizations, libraries... And and I guess how you you look from the, from the outside uh, toward us, we're a resource for you. But I have to work with you. <laughs> thank you. But uh, do you have optimism? One and two. What are your observations about what we can do, if anything, to bring that 85% into these histories, the, the, these memories that, that you talk about, which are so important? I probably have no idea about this that all of you haven't thought about. Um, Am I optimistic? I'm not optimistic about the human condition or uh, history itself uh, at all. Um, And I think only a fool is. But I am a little optimistic about this. And I think it comes largely from working with, not from teaching my students at Yale necessarily, although some of them are fabulous, but it comes from working on exhibitions at the New York Historical Society now for some time and seeing crowds of people cram into the place the largest attendance ever at an exhibition in that venerable institution on slavery. Uh, the largest before that was, was an exhibition on lynching of all subjects, a collection owned by a man here in Atlanta, at least it used to be, um, and from working with documentary filmmakers. More history has been taught in the form of documentary films in the last 30 years than any other medium. Not Hollywood movies necessarily, but documentary film. There's a, there's a great reason for hope in certain mediums. The public museum, the public exhibition, um, documentary film, and in the now hundreds and hundreds of teacher workshops and institutes that so many of us do. Having said all of that, we're still only reaching a tiny percentage of the population. I don't have any magic bullets other than the methods we're already using. And what it often means is, is sometimes holding our nose and compromising. I I hate to say that on some of the ways we present what we do. Um, 
I'm doing a little of that with this book I have coming out. It's by a trade publisher. They're going to send me at every corner of the continent to talk about this book in places I don't even know exist. Uh, but I'm happy to do that if I can find people who don't read books most of the time. Having said that, too, what, what academic historians have to do, especially if we have any access to a bully pulpit of any kind, and I don't mean our classrooms necessarily, but public bully pulpits, is we have to get engaged. If, if we oppose a certain way a memorial has been presented for legitimate reasons, we should say so in the press. If we have a critique of a film that is played on public television, we should find a place to criticize it. If we don't like the way a president of the United States uses the past, we should write something and say so. If we don't like the way the past is being manipulated, used, and appropriated, we have to fight back and say so. Because often it just goes, you know, unanswered. Now, having said that, of course, we don't have a lot of power. But Jim Horton has taught me that we do have some. So, no, I'm not optimistic about human nature, but I'm a little bit optimistic about getting to people. Although, just yesterday, I'll, I'll, I picked up the USA Today here yesterday in my hotel room. Or maybe it was in the car. I don't know where I picked it up. But, you know, they had their book section. Anybody see the book section? The only thing listed under history, two great historians. It was Joe Ellis and David McCullough. They have the audience. Now, that's telling us something. Founding fathers by people who can really write. But that's also part of the problem. People love a good story about the founders. And Joe just keeps writing them. And, and, he, and he can write. He's a beautiful writer. Uh, and David McCullough is everybody's favorite voice, grandfather, historian, and God knows what else, you know. Um, we've got to take what David McCullough does on some level and infuse the young historians we're training with at least some of it. Some of it. I mean, we want them to just go get dirty in the archives for years at a time. Well, months at a time, but, but we want them to write. We, we do a lot about this at Yale now in the history department. We talk a lot about craft. Um, so, yes? Uh, given that several states have acted, uh, I appreciate your comments on whether there is a need, opportunity, threat, benefit, whatever, from an official national apology right. on the issue of slavery. And then if you want to continue that into a discussion on reparations, I'd love to hear it. Reparations is always the first or second question uh, at, at any event. This is a sophisticated audience, so it was only number two. Um, I'd love to talk about the apology question. In fact, the nation of Ghana has apologized more than once now. They, they, they sort of do it every year for... Their own, their own complicity in the slave trade, which is good, frankly. Uh, the latest, as you may have just seen, it's only 48 hours old, is that uh, Governor Tim Kaine of uh, Virginia just posthumously, well, of course it's posthumously, pardoned uh, Gabriel Prosser, who led the 1800-aborted rebellion in Virginia. Uh, it was done under some pressure of the NAACP in Virginia, I think. 
but a, a, a pardon is issued for the leader of an American slave rebellion. Now, when they do that for Nat Turner, I will eat my shoes, my hat, and everything else. But, you know, in the statement, and I applaud Tim, Timothy Kane, I mean, or whoever put him up to it, or whoever wrote the speech, or whoever got him to show up, or whatever. I applaud that. But, but in, the, in the resolution, it's, it, from what I've thus far read on the web, it pointed out that Prosser was using the values and principles of the American Revolution. And he was. We know there are two great books on Prosser's Rebellion, at least by now. And, and he was very, he, he modeled George Washington and all of that. Um, so there was a way of putting a kind of na narrative together about Gabriel Prosser that makes him fit. I've always, to be honest, been suspicious of apologies for slavery. Just because, I mean, now what, several state legislatures have done it, some state governors, uh, we've had some city councils now do it. Uh, we haven't had a national presidential apology. Uh, President Clinton sort of did it in Uganda. In fact, Ted Woodmer is a good friend of mine who used to be a speechwriter for Clinton. He's a very good historian, now directs the Brown Library in Providence. Ted was a speechwriter at that time, and he, he told me that they had sort of several versions of that speech written, depending on where they might have made the political choice to do it. I mean, they had like three different varieties of a presidential pardon speech. Somehow the idea of President Bush standing in a cotton field somewhere apologizing for slavery would just be too laughable. What do we do the day after the apology? What, what has it changed about America? Having said that, I know that this really matters to a lot of Americans, and symbols matter. They do. That night I was in Liverpool, and when the director of the new Liverpool Museum announced that the, the Lord Mayor of London had wept when he apologized that day, a hush went over the audience, and then sort of slow applause. People didn't, quite, didn't know quite how to react. Uh, but London had been a major slave port. But the answer, of course, is just what power do symbols have? Uh, I'd rather, in terms of rep reparations, will never happen financially, to cut to the chase, but it can certainly happen in, in, in modes of policy. It can happen in ways of education. And here's, here's one way for you. As we speak, a bunch of us, some in this room, I hope, involved in institutes and centers and museums that care about the slavery question, are beginning to lobby Congress for passage of a bill. I have a copy of it in my bag. Uh, it has, you know, eight resolutions in it. Uh, it emanates out of the Black Caucus to try to get uh, a national commission of some kind established to commemorate the 1808 200th anniversary of the American end of the slave trade. This year, 07, in, in the U.K. has been a huge event, as many of you know. Every museum in Britain has done something on the slave trade, whether they should or not. I saw the one at the National Portrait Gallery. It was kind of all Wilberforce all the time. Um, but I saw the one at the Houses of Parliament, and it was terrific. It really was. It was amazing the way they were able to tell the story, the evolution of, of the legislation. It was fascinating. I'm told that the, 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 Albert, the Victorian Albert Museum did a good exhibit, but it was close. Anyway, it's been a huge thing in England for reasons we could discuss why the British embraced this as though it was the greatest thing the Brits had ever done in their history. Um, nothing's happening in the United States about 1808. It was fairly quiet legislation when it was passed in January of 1808. 
It was a pretty rich debate. But it's not something we really can celebrate because it only led to the vast expansion of domestic slavery and the domestic slave trade. But that's the story we ought to tell. So let's call that reparations. Let's have a commission that studies that. Let's have events around that. Let's officially deal with it. I didn't put any money in, in that guy's pocket out here who accosted me when I went out for a walk in the Olympic Park. But, and I won't get him to read books either. One more? Yes. Um, my name is Chris Lett. Uh, from Tuskegee Human and Civil Rights Multicultural Center by way of AmeriCorps. Um, you talked a lot about collective memory, and you said that universities and, um, I guess, different things that represent different parts of your life can be collective memories. Um, yeah. I learned a little bit about genetic memory, and I wanted to know mm. if, if it had any relation to, if you even believe or validate genetic memory. Um, mm. And if so, like, how I guess how can how can the two coexist, or if they can, um, how does one support the other? How does social and biological memory meet or not meet? Well, uh, I'll never say never. I just heard an interview on some uh, might have been on PBS with the latest scientist who's doing the newest mapping of the genome, which I don't even understand. But they now are, are coming closer and closer to trying to understand how much of our traits comes from our mothers and how much from our fathers and so forth. Um, Skip Gates at Harvard has been running a project. I've attended at least two of his conferences and meetings already on the use of DNA to try to understand origins and roots, percentages of ethnicity, and so on and so on. Although I'll confess to you that the main conference I went to about that the evolutionary biologist at that conference gave presentation after presentation that basically, and brilliant stuff, incredible, I mean, Al Gore-like shows, demonstrating, in fact, that the DNA testing is not going to tell you what village you were from in Africa or what village in Ireland or what village in Russia. It's going to tell you that you're 37% this and 14% that and you're 81% this. Or as my, uh, my dear friend Werner Sollers, who, a colleague of Skip's at Harvard in the Afro-Am department, said Skip had him do the DNA test, and he came back and said he was 100% European. So he put on his door, 100% European. I mean, that's what he is. But um, it's a dangerous road in some ways when we look at the history of, of racial science. All we've got to make sure we never do is step back into the pseudoscience of you know, of, of racial science and eugenics. However, there is genetic memory. It's a real thing. Does it give us certain proclivities? Does it give us certain capacities? Boy, you know, we, don't, we struggle even with the words, don't we? Do we have, you know, does that ability come somehow? I mean, we, talk, we talk it all the time. I get that from my mother. I get that from my father. You're just like your brother. Um... But we don't want to believe. You know, I'll never forget. One quick point. I'll never forget. I was at a conference with the German Historical Institute in Washington, D.C., maybe four or five years ago. Fascinating conference, all about race and ethnicity. And we had just had an opening panel, brilliant opening panel, 
terrific people given papers on how race is a fiction. It's a, it's, you know, it's a, it's a biological fiction. It's a phenotype. Over and over and over, and it's a, it's a social construction. And on and on and on and on. This is more like eight or ten years ago now. And, of course, they're dead right. Then the keynote came. It was Sidney Mintz, one of the greatest anthropologists of, of recent memory. He's written so much about the transformation of African cultures into the new world. And Sid got up at the beginning of his keynote and he said, you know what, those three people who just gave those papers, they're all absolutely right. Those were brilliant papers. The problem is everybody outside this window doesn't believe it. And then we all of a sudden were looking out in the streets of Washington, D.C., seeing all the people walk by and realizing there's your 85%, and they don't believe anything these people said. They believe race is real because in, 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 the da in their daily lives, race is real. I don't know where the study of the genome is going. Uh, I, I would be a fool to even suggest. There is, there is body memory. We know this from dance. Uh, I was in a working group once on memory, and we, we actually read a fair amount about dance and how it's transmitted. Um, I don't know. <laughs> is this the last question or the... Is this, okay, go ahead. Just uh, very quickly. Um, during your talk, you mentioned how you looked at city directories and newspapers in, I guess, an attempt to sort of correlate what was in the slave narratives. Yeah. Um, what other research did you do to try and correlate what you were reading in the slave narratives? Did you find papers from the families or the businesses that they were hired out to or the families who owned them at one time? Yes, yes, and almost yes. Uh, family papers, almost none. Um, I found some wonderful stuff in a regimental history. This 21st New York that John Washington joins is a regimental history. That very day, the regimental historian writes up what they were doing in Falmouth, uh, Virginia, and I was able to, and, 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 and there's, in, the, in, the, in that regimental history, the guy writing it says, you know, there were a lot of these young black slaves who came over and became our cooks, and they were really good. They made the greatest hash. John Washington says in his narrative, they loved my hash. A man sent from heaven. I got two hashes. That's enough evidence. <laughs> right? Um, the official record of the War of the Rebellion was hugely important. The famous OR, you know, you've all used this, hundreds of volumes of it. But the official record of the war and all those dispatches that they recorded through those military dispatches down to the rank of some captains and colonels, but even the generals, especially the generals, I'm able to locate both John and Wallace, John and the Manassas campaign, and test his memory. Because he's giving me dates, and he's usually right. He's off by a day here and there. He's telling me the road he's on in northern Virginia near Groveton or near wherever, Culpeper. And the same with Wallace. Uh, the official record was huge. I've been able to pinpoint within 48 hours of the day Wallace was picked up in, in that boat um, by when Granger, the general, was back at Fort Gaines. So it's, it's basic detective work. Newspapers were tremendously important to ferret out their lives in New York and Washington after the war. City directors give you basic information, as do the census uh, and a few other things. 
In John Washington's case, I also had some other documentation, some letters and lots of photographs. And then I was able to find their children, um, mostly by census material, but also by the press. Um, I looked high and low for some records of a fraternal order that Wallace joined. I never found those records. Abyssinian Baptist Church does not keep good records. Shame on them. Um, so, yeah, I mean, a, a wide variety of things you end up going to. Um, I was able to understand the infant mortality that's going on in New York City in Little Africa, as it was called, which we now call Greenwich Village, by looking into some uh, statistical studies of infant mortality. And by the way, photographs. The New York Public Library, where I spent all of last year on a fellowship, has a fantastic collection of digital photos, and I found a photo of the actual street that Wallace lived on. It's called Minetta Lane, which was made famous. And Jacob Reese is how the other half lived. It was a street full of saloons. And now, then I began to understand. Now I know why he left there to get over to Jersey City. Because his, his kids were being born. So I was able to say he left New York to get away from Minetta Lane. <laughs> Certainly one of the reasons. You know, you look for some evidence that gives you the confidence to say what you're going to say when you're doing this kind of history. When you, you know, I'm used to writing about famous people, by and large. And I may yet go back to Doug, Frederick Douglass, but, you know, the unfamous don't, don't leave us a lot. So. Uh, and I was also taught a lot by this researcher I helped, or that helped me, and by the Greenwich Historical Society. <laughs> Thank you. He'll be in the foyer signing books. I think they're going to delay the next program about 10 minutes. Is that correct? And uh, he'll be at the uh, Robert Penn Warren uh, due. Let him, give him a, a chance to get back there and sign some books. Thank you.